Hey, so no funny opener this week. Yeah, we're both brain dead. Or at least uh-huh. I am. <laughs> I think I might have COVID. Are you serious? In my, le- in my left nostril only. Oh my god. <laughs> Just like uh Erica Badu who said it? Yeah. Uh I had weird respiratory symptoms the last ten days. Mm-hmm. They didn't they didn't feel like COVID, but it was just I felt like my insides were made of sandpaper when I was breathing. I think this is like a home stretch light at the end of the tunnel symptoms. Ugh, I know. I, don't know. I just saw this interview this morning on uh, Morning Joe, my favorite, <laughs> uh, my favorite daytime pastime over coffee and uh, oats. Same. Uh, they were interviewing the Moderna CEO. He's like our age. Oh my god, that's crazy. Should have should have invested. Should have bought stocks uh, like Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> uh i don't even know how to buy a stock so yeah so how much do you for do that? that maybe maybe our more a uh finance savvy listeners can yeah, maybe, give us maybe, some tips maybe daniel keller can chime in and let us know uh, how to yeah. do it uh yeah only legally and kosher please <laughs> um, i know there was that robin hood app that everyone was going on about and then it turned out to be some sort of like financial uh scam drama or something in the company so yeah shocker yeah exactly um yeah just gearing up here for uh thanksgiving and whatever form or shape uh this would look because we're kind of uh finicky about our family gathering we're still trying to figure out how to make it happen when is it uh i think the 26th so in a week from now oh wow but uh again i feel like this is like home stretch light at the end of the tunnel like symptoms where i feel like we've made it this far i don't want to fuck it up last minute and totally. end up like chuck grassley or one of those like <laughs> congress seniors who are gonna oh, you know it's like those it's like the auschwitz liberation where all these people like survived uh, the war and then they liberated auschwitz and like they died of like uh they like gorged themselves on like a really hefty meal oh my and God. Di- died of like basically you know the body being unable to like handle that much food oh my god so um i don't want to die this late in the game yeah but uh we are thinking about like um are a delicious dish for thanksgiving <laughs> <laughs> well i i was telling my parents a few days ago I could really go for stuffing, mashed potatoes, gravy. Same. And that's it. Like, I don't even need a turkey or anything. I just really love the fixins. I love a good turkey, though. No, I do, it's too. It's so but... yummy. Are you a pumpkin or a pecan pie kind of guy? Oh, I think definitely pumpkin. Like, I really like pecan pie. But mm-hmm. I really love um, butter tarts in Canada. They're similar. I mean, they're like mm-hmm. small tarts. Yeah. I find those even more satisfying than a pecan pie because mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's that kind of filling without the nuts, but I think there's just more butter in it or something. Yeah. Uh, those are amazing, but I or haven't had a, a, or as Dolly Parton said, a pecan is something you put under your bed at night. It's pecan. Pecan. <laughs> Ugh, I don't believe that. Um, I could go for both. 
I went to a Canadian Thanksgiving in Berlin. It was a a potluck, like a bunch of artists a few years ago, like two or three years ago. That was amazing. People mm-hmm. brought such good things. That was probably like the best Thanksgiving I was ever at. Was it like a deep fried turkey or was a? No, I think we've all been scarred by those uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission warning videos about like the after turkey. The bo- after the Boston Marathon attacks. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> like Thanks the- for killing uh, turkey, uh, <laughs> fried turkey for us. I uh, I made this really good video Christmas card like 10 years ago with my ex. Uh, there was this master cut compilation of uh, deep fried turkeys setting houses on fire. Because <laughs> every, every year around Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's like always in the news, like uh, safety tips when you're deep frying a turkey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't do it indoors. Yeah. Like just don't do it. Yeah. Do you send out Christmas cards? Uh, with your portrait on you you have your (laughs) portrait taken (laughs) maybe i should this year just like a sad solo christmas card like the photo you get at the sears portrait studio or maybe like a suggesting portrait with a nip slip (laughs) (laughs) send it out to all the potential suitors and maybe i you know actually that would be fun i could just put my face on elaine uh yeah that's like uh, yeah yeah exactly the yeah like roadside beautification <laughs> uh i could do like the Susie painting from curb totally the no, kramer like the, like the the sexy george the sexy george yeah just do like a collage of them all as a christmas like card a, I roaring, think that'd be fun. a roaring shemek <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm really into this Instagram account, the one that has like uh, 1990s movie premieres. I always send you things from there. Oh, yeah. Everyone's in cargo pants, basically. Exactly. And there's always so much good uh, Jason Alexander content on there. Yeah. He has really good uh, looks going on. The good thing about him, like the comforting thing about him is that he was absolutely never good looking. So there was never like a moment of degradation where we were like, oh, he like, he, he like aged. Oh yeah. He's always looked the same. Basically he's looked the same since the 1980s, which is amazing. Yeah. And it's funny because if anything, Larry, uh, Larry David has, I mean, he's not a, like a classically good looking person, but if anything, old age has made him look more stately or like, it's sort of like, he, he makes more sense now. Yeah, he kind of looks like George Washington now. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> and that's uh that's like a Louis CK uh trope to say that like he was never good looking and if anything like the rest of like uh the other men sort of uh caught up to him as he was aging cuz everybody's looks started degrading and he was already degraded <laughs> to begin yeah, with. Yeah. Um yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I've been watching been watching a lot of season six, Sex in the City. Oh, I should watch that too. It's pretty good. It's where uh, Samantha gets cancer, I think, and uh, Petrovsky. Well, it actually, it actually starts with a burger who's such a oh, shitty yeah. boyfriend. Um, And then Petrovsky comes into the picture. And it's funny, like, thinking about Emily in Paris in a sense. Well, obviously, Darren Starr had it in mind, but, like, Emily in Paris essentially 
conceptually starts uh, where Sex and the City sort of left off. Oh, totally. With like the Paris connection. Yeah. Uh, but Petrovsky's just such an asshole. Oh, and, God, he's uh, such a douche. Like Jordan really hates him. He can't even look at his face. I'm like, I mean, I like, I like. Uh, I was gonna say Mika Brzezinski. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> uh, Brzezinkov. Our people, Mika. Our, Mika is he Brze- our people though? I feel like- no, no, no. Mika is Mika Brzezinski oh, yeah. is our people. Brze- it's funny because like slang for big boobs in Hebrew is Brzezim. Oh my god. <laughs> and Brzezinski is pretty. Uh, She's uh, what's a what's an interesting euphemism for her? She's uh, she busty. Let, let, maybe, yeah, she's but yeah. <laughs> Who was her dad? I'm forgetting. Uh, Brzezinski, the uh, what was he? The state, uh, uh, state secretary of state. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is it Vitold Brzezinski? I mean, I remember the face. He looks very American Secretary of State, or yeah the ussr like he no 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 he left poland in the 60s i believe sorry it was bigniew brzezinski uh Uh, what a name yeah uh okay he was born in 1928 Mm -hmm. Uh, who was he a state secretary under god like carter or something Uh uh-huh yeah uh okay I'm on the Wikipedia. I've read his Wikipedia before, but uh, my my brain is a sieve. Uh, okay, so how did you fucking end up with uh, Scarborough? Yeah, I don't know. Remember when they hit it? That was crazy. I mean, it was showing. Like, it was not very difficult to tell that they were uh, cheating on their uh, respective uh, spouses. Yeah. Also, remember when they would broadcast from uh, the same house, but pretend they were in different locations? Yeah, basically. Uh, Does he, is he still in a band? Do they still like uh, do jam sessions? And oh, God, yeah, the band. Joe and the Scarboroughs. And- <laughs> okay, so Zbigniew Przezinski was born in Poland, and then when he was a child, his father was posted to Montreal as consul general interesting and then he went to school in montreal and then uh moved to the u.s etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. and yeah and then he was uh in the carter administration right so uh huh yeah wait so just go- going back to petrovsky for a second for the for our listeners who uh, don't don't know what i'm talking about uh season six carrie starts uh dating actually she just starts uh dating carrie and uh charlotte go to a chelsea gallery opening <laughs> and uh do you remember what gallery show they go to uh <laughs> wait it's iconic it's not the naked woman is it uh I'm not sure I uh, know what naked woman you're referring to. There's there's one episode that is a performance artist who's sorry standing all night in the gallery. That's the one. She's not naked though. Uh, but it, okay. Who is who is it? A uh, who is it supposed to be? Like a they Marina come, Abramovich. Yep. <laughs> they, go, <laughs> they go to Marina Abramovich, Chelsea. 
opening she's allegedly present in the space 24 7 and but it actually f- is supposed to be her or is it like imitating lo- something honestly i can't tell if it's a lookalike or if, she, if it's like a <laughs> marina abramowitz piece that has a performer mm-hmm. uh standing in for her but anyway um so carrie and charlotte go to this opening and carrie like mocks it because carrie it's funny to like look back at it and not even realize that carrie was supposed to be like a like a uh not a like a highbrow sort of uh creative person um and so like they're standing in the gallery and carrie's like mocking the whole thing like not believing that she's not like sneaking backstage at, like 3 a.m to um for an Entenmann's do, donut for an Entenmann's or a, or a Big Mac, <laughs> which appears like further down the episode. Uh, anyways, and, and Petrovsky is also there. He's like a well-known artist who like goes back to the era of uh, studio 54. He like allegedly would like hang out with um, Andy Warhol and uh, I'm forgetting the woman's name. Who's also mentioned in the episode. Um, anyway, and he's <laughs> Valerie like, Valerie Solanas. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh and he's just like a super slavic like dark spirited russian a dark energy very dark energy but just like (laughs) russian like you just say yeah and so they start they start dating and uh it ends up at the end towards the end of the season with him relocating to uh paris where he's working on a like a big museum show and uh Am I like so little retrospective? Yeah, am I like giving out too many spoilers? Has anyone out there not seen season (laughs) finale of Sex and the City? If you haven't, please subscribe to HBO Go, HBO Now, or HBO Max. (laughs) It's also on Hulu. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. Like the HBO, uh, like add in. Uh, so then uh, Petrovsky, they show his work and it's light installations, which are basically just like. Olafur Eliasson, uh, <laughs> light or like, rooms. Je- yeah, Jenny Holzer or something. Like and like, they claim like, there's like a lot of scenes where he allegedly makes the work himself in his, um, I don't know where, where the studio is even supposed to be because I think he lives somewhere like a top floor Fidei loft or something. Oh, yeah, and uh, or, I don't know. I think you know what? I think the studio, his studio is in the same building, but it's like he allegedly is like fabricating all of his stuff by himself, which makes no sense. Okay. Cause he also has major a major f- plot hole. <laughs> yeah. Cause he also has like a full staff of, uh, um, like a secretary and assistants and stuff like that. Cause when Carrie spends the night over for the first time, she wakes up in the morning and she like walks down the, the staircase into like an open, uh, open space office where his entire staff there like screaming in <laughs> French because they're like it's like this the floor of the stock market or something like that. Or a Chelsea gallery. An yeah, exactly. abusive Chelsea gallery. Yeah. Uh allegedly pace. Mm, we should get to that in a future oh, we episode. We should. <laughs> Some big expose. Next week. Uh anyways, the season finale is one of the most dispiriting sort of disappointments, romantic disappointments uh to have ever been, you know, depicted on uh, on TV. Cuz she it's ends true. up uh she ends up following him to uh to Paris thinking that she's going to, you know, be the that sort of American in Paris and live the dream but turns out he's like an aggressively narcissistic uh person who doesn't see her even as many artists are. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sorry, but if you don't suffer from imposter syndrome as an artist, you're a megalomaniac. Yeah. Like there's no there's no middle ground. Like um Yeah. Anyways, that's what I've been doing this past week. Uh amid plummeting uh temperatures <laughs> here in the city. It's like almost hit uh, zero Celsius here this month. Yeah. It's been uh it's been balmy and nice here. It, it, today was 12 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. It's been nice. It's, Maybe uh, the, cli- the climate is celebrating Trump's defeat. <laughs> <laughs> it's just snapping back to place now that he's gone or almost gone. Oh my God. I can't wait. I just like uh, the tweets, the drama, NBC nightly news, <laughs> chaos. Do you, think he's, do you think he's wearing spandex? <laughs> Because I, I know sent he's wearing you that picture. He's wearing Spanx. He's Spanx. Like, sorry, yeah, sorry. Spanx. No, he has like a girdle on. Yeah, because his his guts like surprisingly flat in that picture I sent you. We can post it to our uh, Instagram account. Yeah, it's. I think uh, when Anderson Cooper called him an obese flailing turtle. Yeah, he got really sad and started wearing uh, like shapewear. Yeah, because the like the guts shape is incommensurate with the butt yeah he has such a like a bulging like i like a centaur's butt but the gut's like surprisingly flat (laughs) i don't know and then there's that picture of him and his like uh, armored suv like tweeting or something like that with his like grandma's spectacles He looks totally. like a German, like a German Fielmann ad. <laughs> totally. He looked like he uh, he had readers from CVS on. <laughs> like my dad buys a new pair every week from a Shoppers Drug Mart in Canada. <laughs> yeah, my dad too. And it's it's definitely upped his aesthetics. He looks. I, I sent you a picture recently. My dad like by way oh, yeah. of uh, his new over the counter. Um, prescription glass and non-prescription glasses looks much more uh, trendy and fashionable now. Um, oh. Anyways, highly recommend watching season six of Sex in the City. Also, uh, Samantha just like looks like Madonna in Confessions. The Confessions oh yes, era. the hair. Totally, you're right. Yeah, just like uh, strut- outfits, strut- strutting down the streets of the meatpacking district with her like uh, Capri cargo pants and uh, yeah, it looks like outtakes from uh, Jump. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, this week is the fifteenth birthday of the uh, Confessions on a Dance Floor album. Where which... the fuck is the Madame X the tour DVD? Yeah. Okay. David Fearman, if you're listening, get on it. Find out. Yeah, exactly. Our sources in uh in Italy, what's her name? Uh Debbie, uh Debbie uh Oh Mazar. Yes. Yeah. David, find out from Debbie when the Madame X DVD is coming. Also, you know, I think Debbie came back to the States just to vote. I like saw saw an Instagram post of her a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. She was in New York voting. Oh, and then good. she went back to Italy, I guess. She was the swing vote. Uh, yeah, sure. It's oh. funny because, you know, New York State is still counting votes. Like, the full tally is not in yet. Oh, yeah, they're only at 60% or something. Yeah. Sounds shady. And, <laughs> yeah, very shady. Uh, um, Yeah. Which might be a good segue to our new topic. Uh, 
so there's this uh, hot off the presses new posts on Artnet News or Tora. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, an analysis piece by Eileen Kinsella entitled, They're Only In It For The Money, and Six Other Myths About New York Collectors Busted by a New Survey of the City's Art Market. Um. So this group of independent art fair um, and arts economics uh, put together a survey and a report that sort of s- tries to like you know comb all the information and puts a like paint a better picture of the arts uh, in the art industry uh, on the East Coast and the article, sorry, the post kind of uh, details its main findings in uh, in six bullet points which we're going to talk about and uh do you have it uh do you have the tab open Shemek? oh i have it open i'm writing i have a dual monitor set up right now just for this <laughs> <laughs> um so maybe we wanna you want to say a couple of words about this uh analysis piece well so uh, the report is based on surveys which were completed by 388 collectors in the New York tri-state area, and 146 uh, were completed by art advisors. First of all, I just have to say I'm actually quite shocked uh, at the number of samples in this survey, because when you look at, for example... Yeah, like, it's like Nate Silver grade. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, like public opinion polling or things related to elections, they'll have like a thousand samples. Right. And then they're like determining what's happening in a country of 40 million people based on, you know, a thousand responses. So mm-hmm. I'm actually quite impressed by a uh, 388. Uh, so, so how did they reach out to those people? Yeah. I'm wondering maybe, maybe they contact since it's independent, maybe they contacted the galleries that right. exhibit with them and ask, ask them to, maybe send to their clients or plus they also, also have a like database. The, they have a database yeah. of people. Also, I feel like the survey questions are not like, uh, uh, they're not controversial or anything like that. It's not like a, an election, um, exactly. an election uh, survey or something like that. Where uh, sh- shy voters or people who are hiding their true uh, feelings. Although I feel like there's something that we will come to where I feel like people are hiding their true feelings, which mm-hmm. I will get to. Okay. Okay. So the first myth that this article addresses is everyone is leaving New York. Mm-hmm. Do you have a gut reaction to that before Wait, we go maybe further? Maybe we can uh, read to our listeners what it says. So, sorry, Donald Trump. New York remains the largest art market center anywhere in the world. The report estimates that the Big Apple accounts for up to 90% of the total value of art transactions in the U.S. Um, I actually read a New York Post statistics thing a couple of days ago that said that a total of 300 thousand people had uh, filed for uh, you know a request to change their uh, uh their primary address oh well in the city which doesn't uh, take into consideration people who have you know um decamped but haven't requested a change in a primary address mm-hmm. so like that that tally that number is probably going to go much higher i like seven eight months into this pandemic i'm not sure like how I'm supposed to feel about New York sort of um, kind of emptying out of it's not even emptying out, but just people uh, moving out. Like I'm trying to like, 
understand where I like ideologically stand on the matter, but I don't think yeah. I have much of a an opinion or a feeling about it because like living life here, you don't really notice that there's like fewer people, I guess, out and about. Yeah, in that I was, respect. I was going to ask: Do you know anyone personally who's left uh, during the pandemic for, because of the pandemic or employment reasons related to it? I. I just think it's accelerated people's, you know, plans essentially. Yeah. I know of I know of a few people people who took the opportunity and uh the advantage to move to New York during the pandemic because prices have gone down here. Yeah. Um I mean I personally was able to find a studio space at a pretty uh competitive rate because of the pandemic and I was sort of counting on it to be able to find a cheaper space. Yeah. So like First of all, be very skeptical of any use of the word everyone in a context trying to generalize anything because what is what is everyone leaving New York means? It's like well, it's a city of millions and millions of people. It's just yeah, exactly. it's huge. But um I know I think I know one person who's left, but I think it's it's probably that same kind of thing like it, it maybe just accelerated something that may have happened already because once uh kind of lockdown happened and all that uh this friend and his partner were staying with the partner's parents out of mm-hmm. the city and i think maybe there was a job opportunity and things like that so yeah it's i don't know it's it could have gone either way i also don't understand if the the saying everyone is leaving new york is that supposed to be a like a threat a uh like i just don't understand it like yeah. clearly it's not statistically factually true that everyone is leaving New York. Yeah. But also when Trump is like fetching about like, oh, everyone's leaving New York. Well, okay. Even if rich people are apparently living in New York, it's like they're leaving New York for the house in the Hamptons they already own. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, what's, I don't know. They're still going to be in the city. They're not going to like give up their lives in the city. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's also tax advantages to, like not living in New York City. <laughs> like, yeah. And I've I've been hitting museums the second they started reopening, most of them on the Upper East Side, and schools, like public schools, were slower to reopen in the city, but private schools who mostly um, are located on the Upper East Side and even Chelsea, I'm thinking of avenues, they started <laughs> reopening much earlier and the streets were just teeming with, you know, students and their au pairs etc etc um i feel like i don't know people haven't really left new york in that yeah sense. exactly i mean if if uh you're spending more than what like 180 days or six months or whatever at your second home as a wealthy person well yeah that's why you switch your uh primary residence yeah um, so the the article also says the city is also home to a whopping 40% of art fairs in the country. Um, and that's going to be a while before they come back in, you know, full extent. And it also says, plus, it provides a key platform for artists, both alive and dead. Around 60% of American artists, estates, and foundations are based in the city. Um, 
why is it entitled myth number one? Oh, I guess the myth number one, everyone is leaving New York is trying to sort of, uh, we're trying to debunk that. I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, very slow here this morning. <laughs> we're um, both brain dead. Yeah. Also, you know, I think people are just weighing, like sort of balancing and weighing to uh, the reality versus the options. I mean, yes, it's been a major hit to, you know, people's livelihoods and life projects and stuff like that. But also, like, we know that there's like, a, that this will end at some point. So like, what do you just like invest so much money, energy and effort into like, uh, cons- um, um, liquidating your whole operation and moving somewhere else like those yeah. things don't just happen overnight like that's yeah, exactly. it just goes back to me saying you know if, uh when you ask me if people were leaving new york uh and i said yeah it accelerated some processes but just to like overnight decide this is not working for me anymore it also takes a lot of effort and investment into you know just packing up uh and leaving oh definitely uh yeah Okay, myth number two. Mm-hmm. New York collectors only care about investment. It's true that New York is home to many of the world's top art collectors. Half of the country's 3,000 most active and deep-pocketed art buyers live there. The average collector interviewed owns 146 works of art. That's insane. <laughs> you know. Uh, and that's the average. 146? That's wild. Yeah, I'm shocked, to be honest. But I guess at the same time, you know, if someone's actively collecting, they probably own, like, tons of paperworks, and, you know, not everything is a a high-value museum-quality painting. <laughs> I guess that's true, but, like, the I sent you a, a graph like a pie chart from the from the original report that sort of broke down what people are actually collecting. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, I'm scrolling up. I'm not finding it. Uh, anyways, like a good a good chunk is unsurprisingly uh, paintings. And um, sorry, I'm trying to find it. Um, yeah, and then at the very bottom of the list is film, video, and digital artworks were were purchased by fourteen percent of respondents in the last two years. Um, I I wouldn't buy a video. <laughs> not saying it's uh, not a valid art form, but I mean, like I'm sorry, I'm just uh, I'm gonna claim ignorance, uh, plead ig- ignorance on that. How do you collect it, store it? What is the how do you like appropriate value? Or assign value to a like a purchase of a film or video work. I don't know. It's just as someone who worked at a media art center, <laughs> <laughs> I would not buy a video work. Uh, like I think I have been in one collector's house one time who has this like small screen in the kitchen that like plays a loop of something. But well, yeah, it's it's always this uh, the Hantorex monitor, you know the one. Yeah, it's the black box with the CRT screen. Oh God, no! Yeah, the Bruce Nauman aesthetics. Yeah, um, the, no, I'm thinking. The, yeah, he had in his kitchen. He had those like it basically looks like those cheap like photo album frame, like digital <laughs> photo album frames you get at Best Buy. Oh my God! And I guess you just stick a USB stick in it, and it plays a loop of like God whatever like i can't even name a single uh digital artist uh 
a, a Petra Cartwright, like uh, I was just say, a, a Petra Cartwright <laughs> YouTube, uh, those stripper ladies on the desktop. Actually, that would be fun. I'd be into having that at home. Yeah, I I uh, saw the show of hers in Berlin, and it was it was like a Windows desktop with these strippers that pop up all over the place. Um, you I know just, that my, Samsung my, Frame TV? Yeah, didn't we see it together at? the toronto art fair didn't yes, samsung have a exactly. booth there <laughs> and we we feigned interest yeah. and got them to like explain to us how it Tr- work trying to get a discount or something yeah. uh yeah i would totally get one of those and have something running on it it looked chic yeah but like how the hell do you even sell uh those film works like i, I it's i think that's the problem is uh like you said there is a conservation issue uh of course things can be digital but just because something's digital doesn't mean it'll last forever which yeah. i know most people don't care because they're like well i'm gonna die so yeah but, but also you know things should exist for posterity or what have you uh this media arts center i worked at everything <clears throat> was basically on videotape like on beta mm-hmm. tapes and we had like a climate controlled storage and all that. And we actually had a presentation from someone from like the archives that came to us, uh, from the Manitoba archives. And it was actually like a very scary and depressing presentation because she talked about how tape, uh, DVDs, et cetera, degrade over just a few decades so basically it's like you should be making like redundant backups of everything yeah exactly um even that's not enough if things are digitized like you need redundant backups of that and when you have like thousands of pieces in your collection that suddenly have to be digitized it's just like a never-ending project um i guess i'm just not i'm not a collector at heart and so i just don't understand like an emotional investment in something that's like durational, I guess like the work that we have at home are, um, I don't think we bought a single work of art. It's mostly trades that we, uh, did over the years with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything just has a sentimental value, which I guess we'll get to it. And, you know, reasons why collectors collect. Um, I just, I'm wary. I like don't want to make any uh, any critical judgment of like why collectors collect certain things, but like I personally would never never uh, spend money on film, video, or anything digital that requires like a digital setup, uh, projection, or something like that. I yeah. don't know. Maybe it's just me. No, I think it's important to support those artists that make work in that media. But like you said, I don't have that immediate connection to it. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to have a monitor with something running on all day. So, And also, case in point, I went to MoMA two days ago because I wanted to see their new rehang of the collection. And uh, I saw some like beautiful works. I All of a sudden, I'm realizing I'm starting to gravitate towards uh, um, photography, which I kind of was never... I mean, it's so dumb to say I was never into it, but it's just I was never... Like, I never found myself gravitating... Oh, sorry, someone just rang the uh, buzzer. <laughs> Um, I like never gravitated towards it, but now with museums being so empty and you're able to just walk up to wall texts and not feeling like, you know, crowds are like pressing down on you, pressing in on you. 
Um, I like I'm finding myself enjoying the sort of photojournalism history galleries at moments, stuff like that. But then I came back home yesterday and I realized, oh my God, I missed out a whole, like <laughs> a whole gallery at moment that's totally dedicated to like digital arts and internet art. And, um, I didn't feel like I, uh, missed out on anything, honestly. Well, I read an article about it today and it didn't sound that exciting. So, no. Uh, it's fu- it's just funny how it aged so rapidly. Yeah, I mean, there definitely were a lot of, I don't know, regressive aesthetics. Like, when I moved to Berlin, that was 2010. That was kind of peak, like, post-net art era. Mm-hmm. And everything was kind of swathed in these aesthetics that like weren't current or (laughs) yeah what the internet was like actually yeah it was all kind of like late 90s nostalgia that's what it felt like yeah and over over intellectualizing the moment sort of the whole aesthetics feels like it's like talking over you yeah it's very there's a lot of like irony and sarcasm in it and at the same time, I guess the work was trying to bottle and sort of capture a, like a certain zeitgeist by yeah. digital means. Um, and I just, I just yeah, really but, lost its relevance quickly, I think. But like a lot of it wasn't even about being digital anymore about the internet. It was like, oh, how can I fabricate a facsimile of something that exists on the screen and then right. try to sell it? And, yeah. uh, like I'm thinking of like the, uh, AIDS 3d OMG obelisk, which was like a, a recreation of, uh, or pyramid or what have you, um, yeah. which was like a gif that was then turned into a sculpture. Right. So, I mean, let's just be honest about it. It was just a collection of a lot of like shticks and gimmicks and uh, those things have a shelf life that's usually much shorter than more kind of lasting and sustainable mediums that have prov- proven themselves, sorry, throughout art history, such as, you know, sculpting, painting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh-huh. And I think I think there's some uh, amazing artists that did come out of kind of that era or that scene, uh, like Oliver Lyric or Alexandra Domanovich. Uh, uh, but then I know there's also a lot of dreck. I just, I feel like, yes, there's a lot of good art that came out of that era, but those were artists who were like interesting thinkers rather exactly. than interesting makers. Yeah. And, uh, it kind of sort of held up like, you know, a New York Times op-ed from like three months ago. It was very sort of punching and relevant when it came out. But like looking back at it, it's just like has no standing anymore, has no value. Yeah. Maybe we can Um, do like a post-net art roundtable soon. Yeah. And who knows, maybe it will stand the, the like the long game test of time. And in 20 years, it'll sort of, find its way into a more substantial canon of the art world. Um, but it definitely saw it's like day in the sun. Uh, there were like triennials all over the place. A lot of like institutional shows, the, the Kunstwerke 
uh, Biennale four years ago, three years ago. Oh, the disc one. The disc one. Um, I don't even know how it ballooned to such like uh, yeah, to such influence. But it was just it was all over the place, and it's funny to like reflect uh, back on it, and look back at it, and see how it sort of is diminished in <laughs> in size and significance. Yeah. Well, and now we have meme paintings. Um, so uh, moving oh forward. <laughs> uh, Wait, did we even talk about the myth? No, so we didn't. So, we didn't yeah. so I want to just kind of get back to that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the, again, myth number two, New York collectors only care about investment. So according to the study, an average of 75% of these collectors' holdings are exhibited in personal and accessible spaces, such as homes or offices, with an average of 5% on loan to museums. Uh, so yeah, it's like we would think that most of these collectors are doing this as an investment or to get some return on their investment, but apparently they're actually living with their art. Which I mean, I, I don't believe. <laughs> I actually, I will play devil's advocate here and also reflect on personal experience. I do think that there's sort of a middle ground to this. I think the collectors are heavily emotionally invested in the work they collect, but it is also an investment for them. And if anything, we should sort of tackle the the root issue here, which is the hype machine and the PR machine at the bottom of what gets a certain collector to exactly make an emotional but also a financial investment in something yeah no i think like Uh you said a middle ground is a good way to look at it because why is there so much inertia around certain things in the art world it's not because everyone has had some epiphany that you know this gay figurative painter is the end-all be-all of painting yeah exactly and uh yeah it's just funny to me that like a, a big chunk of like the po- the the population of collectors is all of a sudden like so individualistically gaga and personally gaga about a specific artist it's such a like do you not realize that you're like a part of a herd yeah exactly <laughs> like, remember that like, collector on instagram who i will not name uh who would be consistently floored by things oh i thought you were gonna mention that uh, <laughs> covid vector who's been jet setting throughout this whole pandemic who i oh follow on instagram i will not name yeah sorry who were you talking who about i also follow um uh his name starts with an n and he would constantly be floored by certain works and i was like oh you're floored by red wine stains on rock oh canvas <laughs> It's definitely telling to follow some collectors on Instagram because you like you see them, uh, you see the comments they leave on mass on like oh, the most easy targets. Oh yeah, like um, that certain person we know in New York. Yeah, like it, it, it either. <laughs> yeah. Like either everyone in that group has the very same unique thought, or um, yeah, I don't know, man. Or, or the really straight, like, bro collectors that are like, yeah, killing it, dude. Yeah, you're killing it. And again, uh, it's just like some really banal garbage. It's like, yeah, yeah. killing it. 
Um, yeah, this again, I will say like there's there is a level of laziness to a collection mentality when it comes to the trends because I will say it again. It's like, do you not realize that? uh that unique thought that you or unique emotion you think you have towards work is shared by a suspiciously large amount of people (laughs) (laughs) who are vying for the same piece of the pie yeah there's a there's a waiting list and you're just like why is there a waiting list it must be because it's all objectively amazing yeah exactly um this Uh, like this uh pie plate with acrylic paint stuck to it yeah exactly um <laughs> I I am I will say I am hardened by the fact that there is a resurgence which is uh growing popularity again in um you know investment in paintings and you see sort of uh growing support again for like the investment in the crafts and the skilled and this the more timely like um uh, sort of timed investment in your practice um yeah, instead of just like works that were put together in like five minutes and uh, are flooding the market. Yeah, I will not name names, but um. <laughs> also uh, as friend of the pod Zuzana Chabatul um, posted on Instagram a few days ago. Again, this is a good time to support artists you like. Yeah, exactly. Start uh start looking with your eyes and not. What's the saying? <laughs> with your, with <laughs> Looking your, with your ears. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If there's if there's an artist you like out there, hit them up. Buy something. We're yeah. in the we're in the second wave, and it's a tough time for all. So, right. And that's maybe an expectation to drop. Like uh, you know, we were talking about how COVID sort of collapsed the the barriers and. Uh, like getting your work out there and stuff like that. I feel like collectors are still very much so are like gallery facing or like art advisor facing in like the respect of like, like artists can really sort of hit them up and kind of uh, uh, solicit studio visits and stuff like that. In that respect, I feel like uh, collectors are still very much sort of uh, vying for an investment sort of uh, uh, approach. It's kind of hard to get a, you know, like a, a personal kind of outreach uh, going. Yeah, definitely. Alrighty, moving on to myth number three. Uh, millennials are the biggest customer base. The okay, I already know that's wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it goes on to saying the collectors surveyed spend an average of uh, almost uh, uh, $800,000 on art each year. Uh, although this ranges considerably by age and wealth level, the average annual expenditure for millennial collectors was just over forty-five, uh, $45,000 compared to around $600,000 for Gen X and boomer collectors. The so-called silent generation, those born between 1925 and 1945, reported a much higher average spend of 3.4 million annually. Who the hell is like still alive from the silent generation? <laughs> well, know. I guess our new president is a silent yeah. generation. Uh, also, there's probably like eight collectors uh, <laughs> left of that generation that were surveyed. Yeah, basically. Um. I don't know. Yeah. I saw this chart. I saw this chart in the original uh, in the original post. Um, it sort of shows the uh, 
how the wealth averages around the world changed over the the past decade and it showed that uh you know during the obama years the uh the percentage of american wealth of billionaires sort of went up to uh 37% and then during the trump years it kind of went down to 36% 34% and then had a had an upward tick again of 36 to 36% sorry but at the same time like chinese billionaires had their share of wealth kind of grow much bigger <laughs> so thanks trump wow he really showed china yeah exactly <laughs> um also yeah I, yeah, I mean, also, okay, I just want to know, uh, I feel like these samples are skewed. You know, like like we discussed earlier, who responded to the survey, who even got the survey? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, someone could be a client of a gallery and buys one work a year. Did they get the survey? Or also, it just feels like the the galleries themselves were maybe um reached out to for this uh survey and they were sort of cherry picking their answers to kind of best reflect what is currently best for them financially or statistically because even even for millennial collectors to be average forty five thousand, that's like pretty high i'm sure there's i'm sure there are a lot of people who buy artwork who spend 5,000 or 10,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And I doubt it's been offset by a bunch of millennials spending millions a year. Right. Obviously they exist, but yeah, because millennials, uh, I know we think we're young, but the cutoff goes uh, into the forties now. So if you've had an upper endoscopy, you're you're no longer young. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm pushing upper millennial here. Oh, God. Um, okay, <laughs> myth number four. New York collectors only buy at the top of the market. Despite being a center for the sale um, of the most expensive artworks in the world, even top collectors in New York engage at a variety of price levels. In all, 84% of collectors reported that they most often transacted at prices less than $50,000, and that 43% of their collections were comprised of works by emerging artists. What's your take on that? <clears throat> Again, I think this reflects a skewed sample. Mm-hmm. Um, also, what is your definition of emerging artists? I think we have to ask ourselves here, are those artists heavily pushed by uh, by PR sort of machines? Or is that across the board emerging artists who are either represented by galleries or not represented by galleries i think one thing the survey doesn't make clear is whether the people surveyed were uh collecting maybe independently yeah. outside of um the framework of a gallery or art advisors um yeah and yeah, i think I there's know. a different i think uh different segments of the collecting population will have a different idea of what an emerging artist is right uh, how would you describe an emerging artist uh god i don't even know if there's one answer because it's like if we're doing what we've been doing for 10 years or something Mm -hmm. are we still emerging artists or is it is it a time thing or is it like an accomplishment thing 
you know, like if you talk about like a mid-career artist, is it because you've reached certain kind of career milestones or is it just like a time thing? Right. I don't know. I guess there's a lot of ways of looking at it. Would you say that an emerging artist is maybe a definition of the price point your work sells at, regardless of your, you know, standing in the continuum of time? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I also saw another uh, another chart in the original report that sort of sh- shows a different um, chunk of influence, a different uh, sub industries in this field have in New York. And so, for example, art insurance offices in uh, New York are at you know fifty five percent. Uh, compared to other countries and uh, art PR firms are at almost like a hundred percent sort of uh, influence compared to other countries. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, Which would I'm, explain like a good 90% or how like, yeah, 90, 94% of like all the content you see in the main, uh, in the main outlets here. Oh, totally. I mean, it's funny. It's such an unnecessary business. Yeah. It's like uh, pitching New York Times stories uh, about gallery shadiness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, I guess it just uh, sort of uh, completes the circle. It makes life easier for collectors and art advisors. Um, yeah, it's the galleries that can afford to have a major PR firm on retainer are the ones who are going to end up getting coverage. Mm -hmm. And then the collectors feel comfortable in their choices because the sausage has been made. And right. I will say though, um, art reviews, whether on New York times or art forum, there's, there's a good level of democracy there, even though let's just remind our listeners that art forum is essentially a, uh, like a ad print <laughs> yeah, outlet yeah, yeah. where major galleries essentially pay a good amount of money to have their current shows featured in a printouts in the magazine. Yeah. Uh, but like I, I was featured on a critics pick with my show on the lower East side and that was unsolicited. Oh yeah. No, I remember when that happened. That's amazing. And like New York times reviews and stuff like that. Like it, it, it does make you like scratch your head where like there's uh you know, critics pick is like, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever's showing in Metro pictures at the moment, like yeah. old guard or whatever, not necessarily even a good show or like a, another Dana shuts show. Like really like yeah. the same critics pick time, time again. Yeah. Um, so it is eyebrow raising just to like ask yourself, why, why does this keep getting featured time and time again? Yeah. Well, if I wonder where Jerry Saltz is picking. I would check, but I'm blocked, so... We're, we're mutually <laughs> blocked. Yeah. <laughs> um, <sighs> okay, moving on to myth number five. On, uh, online viewing rooms are a smart way to reach top New York collectors. New Yorkers may simply be OVR online viewing rooms. <laughs> what? <laughs> what does that even that's, mean? that's such a good Sex in the City pun. Oh my! Oh, over. Okay, now OVR, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Online OVR. Yeah, <laughs> OVR. All right. 
Uh, although 90% of those interviewed had browsed the platforms this year, only 22% had used them to finalize a purchase. Meanwhile, more than a quarter had never bought a work of art online. Uh, have you have you sold anything online through one of these platforms this past uh through like these pandemic? online viewing rooms? Yeah. No. And No, I have not. And also I just looking at them and there's one in particular which I will not fully identify mm-hmm. b- but it was so regressive it was like you were walking through doom or wolfenstein <laughs> I was 3D. gonna say that too <laughs> <laughs> where it's like a 1990s not ironically um 3D engine and you're walking through and looking at these shitty uh resolution images on the wall <laughs> yeah I know what you're talking about and after decades of advancements in technology and, uh, I don't know, creatively context, sorry, conceptualizing new ideas, somehow we have not gone past that point. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just don't get the point. Like, collectors for years now have been selling work to clients by sending PDFs you know, of available works and such. And I don't think it's anything new. I'm sure there are people who do not feel comfortable buying something, you know, sight unseen in person, but a lot. I mean, I I actually historically before starting to work with galleries, uh, I was doing most of my business just sending out, you know, solicited um, PDFs and I would sell work. I don't know. I think if anything, those online viewing rooms, again, I was saying it on, on a previous episode, they sort of perform the function of an art event. So yeah. I'm not sure we should like nitpick on the quality as uh, abominable as it is of the presentation. I think it's just sort of... Uh, yeah, it's creating an event so that people can kind of pay attention. and Yeah, because otherwise, like we're just reaching out outside of the context of any event or happening to your uh, Rolodex of collectors doesn't make a lot of sense. I think collectors are also pretty sensitive to, you know, a uncontextualized barrage of offerings. Essentially, yeah. I just hate the um, name online viewing room. Yeah, it just sounds so it, lame. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know, man. Okay, myth number six. You want to go ahead? Yes. Art advisors don't play that big of a role. True. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they play a big role. It's just a, a lazy role, maybe? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, what, what do they add? 10% for uh, hobnobbing? <laughs> right. I mean, let, let's just get more specific about who, who we think this sort of myth addresses. Who is the art advisor uh, that they claim don't play a big role? Like who who would you how would you describe the like typical East Coast or like jet setting art advisor here in the US? <laughs> Wait, I'll just read some more of the text and then okay. we'll get to that. Okay. The survey also offers insight into an underexplored market force, art advisors. The advisors surveyed were either based in New York or had worked with clients in New York within the past year. Local art advisors worked with an average of forty five clients each, 
Okay, that's crazy. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's how do you even manage that? Uh, consulting on sales or purchases worth $33 million in 2019, with 52% of that value attributable to New York clients. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Okay, so there's also different levels of art advisors because there mm-hmm. are kind of the big name art advisors who, you know, are a person, a name, but then they have a, a staff of a bunch of people working under them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are the uh, kind of one person shows. Um, How do you mean? Oh, just like, uh, you know, hi, I'm Pasham Pischek and I'm an art advisor now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, mostly uh, just to clarify to our uh, listeners, art advisors uh, are like gallery alumni, essentially. So uh, uh, gallery staff who, or even gallery owners, uh, um, art directors, gallery or collectors. Owners. Some collectors are like... Uh, really? Yeah. Huh. Some, uh, yeah, it's happened. Okay. People who have a passion for it. Right. But aside, aside uh, you know, from having a passion to it, it also uh, is very helpful to have come from like an established gallery setting where you have yeah. a Rolodex of collectors and uh, essentially doing the same work only with no, uh, you know, rent expenditure and other overhead. Yeah, just uh, a new MacBook Pro and a T-Mobile international plan. I mean, if only for the environmental benefits of it, I support this whole sort of middleman kind of uh, Mache <laughs> uh, role. Because, like, why not? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I art advisors, they help people build collections. They help, uh, you know, collect uh, connect them with galleries and artists, etc. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are some that are above board, and I'm sure there are some shady characters out there. Oh, of course. And let's just let's just be honest about it. They're to a certain extent a barnacle on the bigger, you know, system on the side of the system's ship, essentially, because without all the like PR investment and the other like uh, forms of investments that galleries put into an emergent artist's career, there wouldn't really be a chance for like an art advisor to like leech onto that and sort of uh, parlay and kind of leverage the investment that somebody else has put into the artist's, um, the artist's career. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is if that for like, example, like example, I don't know, luring Augustine wouldn't invest so much uh, in PR and X or Y's artists an art advisor wouldn't have, uh, you know, much chance of like, you know, propping up or like hyping up the, that artist. Yeah. They're, they're definitely, um, like yassing the things that are already popular and uh, well-known. Yeah. Like on Instagram, I guess what I'm trying to say is don't count on an art advisor sort of doing the legwork of uh, getting you a foot in any door. If anything, if you're not hyped up or anything like that, an art advisor would be able to like uh, individually, I guess, sell your work to a low stakes collector um yeah but outside of that context i don't think an art advisor performs that big of a role for under um you know either 
like emerging or underrepresented uh, artists? Well, yeah, I, th I think of, or I think if if a client's working with an art advisor and the advisor, you know, is like, oh, you should look, take a look at this artist's work. They're emerging, not very well known. Unless the collector is immediately drawn to the work, I feel like most of them would probably be like, well, how's it performing? <laughs> right. You know, yeah, exactly. Where did they go to school? What museum shows do they have? Yeah. Why aren't they working with a New York gallery? I, yeah. You know, I feel like that's what the conversation would be. I mean, in a sense, if you're not a megalomaniac, the, the best feeling out of a sale is a sale that's done on such a like such an individual level where you're not big, you're underrepresented, but your work sells and the client, the collector was able to like forge a special connection or feel something really special um, about your work. That's, that's the best sort of best feeling type of sale. Um, it's just reflecting on, you know, my goals as an artist and like reaching people on a personal level. Yeah. Uh, and I know that there's uh, some art advisors we know listening right now. We love you and appreciate you. We do love you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any any of the negatives are uh, about the ones that aren't listening. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also just fucking like develop your own taste. You don't have to be such a sheeple. Well, that's the like, thing. Uh, I think all like, of this ties into sheeple mentality. Yeah. Just fucking Every go to bat for artists work who you really love. Um, As yeah, I, can, I guess... I, I blame the algorithm. It just floods you with like a sense of significance. Exactly. No, as I've mentioned before, it's like I've had very clear experiences of like being completely ignored by people and then people being, you know, tugging at your pant leg the moment it's advantageous. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, yeah, just have, I don't know, some integrity to what you're into and not just what you think you should be into or what, you know, some like market um, trend is or whatever. Yeah. Like one of my best experiences, my most like sincere and naive and plain experiences was my first showing at uh, Not in Miami. Uh, like nobody knew my name. I don't think a lot of people <laughs> know my name now still. But like I had four works hanging like practically anonymously yeah um at the fair and an art art advisor showed up with uh, his collectors and they bought all four works and it was not attached to any like you know upward trend of like popularity or hype or anything like that it was just i guess a a personal connection and a love of the aesthetics or whatever but that was just like completely untethered from any other market forces exactly yeah no and i've i've had those experiences too and that's that's the experience that matters and counts where somebody is drawn to your work and sees some sort of value in it and not looking with their ears, as we said, yeah. or, or an advisor telling them, you know, well, this has increased 300% in the last year or quarter. Yeah. And also just to mention like a competitive price point for artists who are emerging or like underrepresented, it just makes it all the more attractive for someone to bite the bullet and just uh, put together their, you know, affection of your work and the like ability to see them buying it because it's not that expensive. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay. Should we move to the very final myth? Yes. Lucky <laughs> number seven. Uh-huh. Go ahead. No one will feel comfortable going to IRL events again anytime soon. <laughs> Despite the challenges and dangers posed by the public health crisis, 76% of the New York collectors surveyed said they were willing to attend events, exhibitions, and fairs in the city over the next 12 months. Okay, thank you, super spreader. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the Art Brussels super spreader event. Uh, yeah. The onset of COVID last year, this year. Oh, my God. Okay, and 52% said that they would attend events locally or in other regions, including those outside the U.S. You can't keep a New Yorker down. Okay. I'm sorry, who was surveyed here? Those uh, jet sociopaths. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, Everyone stay the fuck home, seriously. Yeah, I know that there's COVID fatigue, which doesn't even apply to those jet-setting collectors who haven't really uh, slowed down throughout the months. Um, I don't know. This is not like South Korea here. Or this Taipei. is not the Busan Biennial. Yeah. <laughs> it's still not safe here, except it's, that fact. It's like not safe anywhere anymore. That's, yeah. that's the thing. Like uh, the spring seemed bad. It's actually way worse everywhere now right uh except for places that are literally islands with mass social control so yeah um just like enjoy the fact that they reopen museums go enjoy nostalgic moments of art appreciation keep conducting your business online for the moment or like make appointments to see shows and uh you know physical galleries where you can control the crowds but just like just hold your breath like this is gonna be over we don't have to crowd um art fair venues until further notice yeah just take it easy take I know, it easy i know we're living in warp speed mentality and there's gonna be a vaccine but just like fucking take it easy now with like market hyping and exactly um, consumption and overdrive yeah get over the fomo especially if you're rich like who cares i'm, I'm sorry i i i pity the rich i yeah. i i truly don't see how the past 7 months have been any easier on the rich than on the poor i feel like this has been such a mental affliction and everyone's been suffering in sort of different manifestations and the rich i just see are trying to like up their sense of escapism and let me just clue you in on something wherever you think you're escaping to your trouble <laughs> your troubles are just going to follow you oh exactly well the difference is that poor people and working class people are constantly stressed and hang by a thread and this is the first time that rich people have like realized that having money doesn't get them whatever they want or whatever yeah except for daily experience uh, except for stories that i would hear of uh la collectors who i guess in june or something like that would be like the first ones to get their hands on those uh rapid covid tests oh yeah god at like $250 a pop or something like that. And they would be able to have these like massive like house parties for their rich friends in Malibu or, uh, which was pretty gross. Yeah. Or like, a a Napa dinner party. <laughs> like Gavin Newsom. <laughs> I don't 
fucking idiot. Okay, and also we just have to make this clear because I've seen people asking about rapid testing or I don't know, working in rapid test enabled contexts. Uh rapid tests are fake. <laughs> like Yeah. I hear uh, they're like 40% effective at showing if if you do have it and they're almost completely ineffective in showing you if you're like uh uh you know truly negative there's exactly. a lot of false negatives if if you're asymptomatic and getting a rapid test it's basically pointless like the it's like you said 40% um false negative so yeah keep infecting people cuz you need to have a house party yeah um just fucking take the opportunity and as i said before Go to a museum, explore the history. There's so much stuff already out there and it's yeah. been vetted like to, you know, varying degrees of uh, reliability, but it's been vetted by institutional history. There's so much beautiful stuff to like explore and study. And go, just like go for a walk. Go for a walk. Um yeah. Parks are great. Thinking, yeah. I'm just thinking of like this beautiful like photojournalism exhibition that I saw at MoMA, like Gordon Parks, who was a African American Life magazine photojournalist, uh, like documenting poverty in Chicago and a lot of like police activity in the streets. Uh, and sorry, I just want to mention also uh, Helen Levitt, who was a female Jewish photographer, street photographer, I should say, in uh, in New York City. Um, and when I saw those exhibitions at MoMA, it just like was such a nostalgic escape. And uh, it makes you sort of puts everything in perspective and makes you realize this moment uh, shall to pass. It's true. And just uh, fucking give it a rest for a second. Yeah. Okay. I should check those online. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love uh, street photography and photojournalism because I feel like it's a nice portal into a time and place I wasn't in. Mm-hmm. So it's educational for me. I really enjoy that. It is really educational. I mean, I don't know why I have such an issue with, uh, I guess, like staged photography or artistic photography or any like, you know, abstraction or like abstract experiments in photography that is less appealing to me. Um, well, I just feel like the whole medium of photography has been, it's just such an easy access medium and it just is bloated beyond sort of proportion. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, it's it's like a portraiture for me in painting. Like, I just don't care. Like, I don't care that you painted a, a random person. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So, like, with photography, kind of don't really care that you photographed a random person. But I do enjoy, like photo conceptualism uh or like i said documentary photography there's kind of a level of dishonesty about the medium um it just it like i feel like some photographers kind of you know tell themselves the lie of the vitality of their work sort of not recognizing that like truly significant photography depicts essentially moments and captures moments such as the you know the original kind of inception of meaning of this medium um 
Yeah, I don't know. Again, maybe I'm just trying to explain why I'm more drawn to photojournalism, yeah. as, as tacky as it might sound. Anyway, you're not Sally Man, so... <laughs> <laughs> but but actually i uh i have to i think on instagram i have to post these photos i had sent you from the local photography competition uh-huh where someone did take these sally man-esque photos of their family and i love them <laughs> i think that's the thing i think when it's um kind of a more I don't know, this natural impulse to capture the image as opposed to like, I am a photographer and this is my job as an artist. And I don't know. And I got my friends to come to the studio. I don't oh know. Okay, we should do a whole episode about the current trend of uh, darkly exposed, underexposed <laughs> f- uh, <yeah>. <laughs> feature <laughs> photography and a times in the sunday times yeah there's like a 20 percent gray um layer in photoshop put on top yeah and uh, it's, it's it started out in the new york times and the sunday times and all of a sudden you see it in the uh, editorial section at the wall street journal and you're like am i losing my sight or is this just aggressively underexposed uh it's a shit show it's a disaster so if, if anyone knows why this is happening, please uh, DM us at thoughts on art. That's thoughts with a zero on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, please subscribe and follow on Spotify, Apple podcasts. Make us a part of your feed. Leave yeah. a uh, po- positive review or unsubscribe if we've offended you. <laughs> Yeah, I hope we didn't offend any of our friends that are uh, art advisors, video artists, photographers, which (laughs) I know I'm already thinking of people that listen to us that are in all those boxes and we're not being shady about you. It's it's, a... Again, we would I not be say, friends with you if you were shitty artists. That's yeah. all, and again, that's all I, we have to say. I, <laughs> and again, I will say, if you're not suffering from imposter syndrome, you're delusional or a megalomaniac, and so have some <laughs> have some perspective. Uh, uh, yeah. Alrighty, I guess that sums it up. That sums it up. Okay, what are you up to for the rest of the week, Amir? We actually, I was supposed to be in Kentucky now, but we decided it's too much of a red zone to drive into. So we're staying in New York and um, it's kind of nice here. The fall's pretty, uh, it's in full bloom. Um, Yeah, I've just been enjoying this kind of uh, veering into winter. What about you? Uh, I am going to make some cake donuts this week. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You uh, You should overnight them to us. I think they would still be good. Cake donuts are amazing because they're moist and delicious for days on end. So you had uh, me at moist. If anyone wants to um, Venmo me, <laughs> that does not exist outside of America, by the way. Um, Any silent generation collectors out there want to Venmo Pshamek? Yeah. So I can send a mirror, a FedEx box overnight of donuts. Mm-hmm. That would be greatly appreciated. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Amazing. Well, it, was, it was nice chatting with you. It's nice chatting with you too. See you next week. Juicy. <laughs> Juicy Kowski. Bye. Bye. <laughs>